Merry Christmas to you all. All right, I'm glad I'm not at your house this Christmas season because it doesn't sound very fun. Boys and girls, I am particularly in the Christmas spirit this morning. Do you know why? I'm glad you asked. Because our friend Aaron Hurd gets to be here with us today, and he doesn't get to be here for church very often. As a reminder, Aaron's brain and his body and his hands don't work quite the way yours do. And so sometimes he makes sounds that sound strange to you, I know, because I see lots of heads turning. But he's a good friend of ours, and what you need to know is that when you hear Aaron, he's actually saying amen to a very good point that Pastor Ryan made during the course of his sermon. (laughs) Some of you should take lessons from Aaron. We're in John chapter 12 this morning. You can turn there with me. And we will stand together for the reading of God's Word. Verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, One of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. It was uh, the summer of, uh, I think, 1990. Well, I'm not going to get myself in trouble. It was the summer before the turn of the millennium in which uh, Jennifer and I, who had met earlier, were reintroduced. And she really fell hard for me. She was <laughs> longing for me to pursue her and trying little ways to convince me to do that. And I was weighing those options, but um, she was leaving for uh, training at Campus Crusade to go on Savile Campus Crusade that summer and was leaving for Colorado. And so I was, I was actually the one who was even more taken with Jennifer and was trying to persuade her that dating me was a good idea, so I tried to, to give her this gift that was fun and creative and, but also expressed my affection. And so it was a number of different things bundled together. She was The food was notoriously bad, so I gave her a bottle of ketchup to cover up the food, the taste of the bad food. And there was a, a man there that we both knew, and he was kind of awkward, and she didn't want to run into him, so I gave her a cheap disguise kit so that she could avoid, you know, pretend avoiding, run, avoid running into him. And then she was spending the summer in Colorado, so kind of the real gift of the package was a fleece vest and um, all of this was intended as an expression of my my affection. 
that I went to some length, I think, to try to be funny, to try to spend some money, to try to say, hey, I think you're pretty neat, and I want you to think I'm pretty neat too. Without an expression, affection really has nowhere to go. Love really just sits and becomes somewhat stagnant. It doesn't have the opportunity to grow and mature because if affection is not expressed, then it does not have the opportunity really to be reciprocated. One of the things I want to hold out to you this morning is that the more you love, and of course particularly the more you love Jesus, the more opportunity you have to experience that love in return. The more you love, the more opportunity you have to experience love. Now some of you at the outset are probably shaking your head and internally you took a little bit of a breath and you said, that's not true. Because the more you love, you also have more opportunity to be hurt. And you've said something too broad without without nuancing it. It's not really true. And that's a good objection. And we're going to have to come back to that as we proceed through the sermon. But at the beginning, we have to be struck, I want you to be struck, by Mary's act, which is beautiful and radical and, as we'll see in some ways, scandalous to those who are gathered there. That she takes something very expensive, she anoints the feet of Jesus, She washes washes his feet with her hair. It's an act of intimacy and love. And it, it, John holds out for us this picture of what does it really mean to love Jesus? Do you, does, when you think about the church at large, does the church embody this posture of Mary before Jesus? Or when you think about your own heart in relationship to Jesus, does, Does Mary embody what is true of you in relation to Jesus? Do you love Jesus in that way? Or is there a part of you that's a little bit uncomfortable? That that seems a little bit over the top? Or a little bit too raw? A little bit too intimate? I would also say that there's part of you that longs to be free to love Jesus like Mary. There's part of you that says, gosh... I wish I didn't have any reservation about loving Christ in that way. So why do we go through that? Why do we have those reservations? Why are we challenged by Mary's picture rather than thinking it completely normal? These are some of the questions I want to wrestle with as we proceed through our passage this morning. As we, as our passage opens, we're in Bethany. Jesus is back at the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he's recently raised from the dead. We're just a week outside of the cross. And John, like all of the other gospel writers, will spend most of the time in his gospel on the last week of Jesus' life. Martha uh, is busy preparing, and as everyone's reclining at the table, Mary comes to Jesus and anoints his feet with uh, very expensive perfume, about a year's wages for an average day laborer, and then lets down her hair to mop his feet. Uh, her act is rather shocking for a couple of reasons. Number one, she anoints his feet rather than his head. Why? Well, it's hard to figure in some ways, because if you were going to honor someone, you would anoint their head with oil. Anointing someone's feet with oil is out of the ordinary. And in fact, it's something you would probably only do, and only be ordinary, if you were preparing a dead body for burial. And Jesus alludes to this in verse 7, that this is actually 
what's transpiring, that this, whether Mary has a full understanding of what's happening or not, this is intended as part of Jesus' preparation for his burial one week from the cross. The other reason that it's scandalous is that Mary uh, would have let down her hair to wipe Jesus' feet. And to let down your hair in this time period is an act of innuendo. Imagine being at a church party and one of the women hikes up her skirt to a very inappropriate height. You all be a little uncomfortable, be a little scandalized, someone would be inclined to say something. Letting down your hair has the same notion in this time period. So it's odd that she would go about it in that way, but she's not letting down her hair simply to be provocative. She's letting down her hair to clean his feet, to, to mop up the excess ointment. It's, it's a profound act of intimacy. It's really this beautiful act that's, in one time it's fit for a king, and at a, from another angle it's fit for a husband. And perhaps Mary, just like she doesn't fully understand that Jesus is being prepared for his burial, maybe she doesn't under, fully understand, but the act communicates this notion that, yes, Lord, you are king, you are husband. You are worthy of all my love and affection. She's taken something expensive. She's humiliated herself. She's acted contrary to social norms. All for what? To express love, to express passion, to express this, this complete dependency and, and caught, being caught up in the person of Christ. Mary's act isn't going to be received well by everyone. It's interesting, you know, John doesn't tell us a lot about Martha. He barely mentions her. But with the mention that she's busy in the kitchen again, you wonder if, and given Luke 10, that Luke tells us the story of where Jesus had reclined with them previously, and Martha was busy in the kitchen. Mary sits with the men to hear Jesus' teaching. Martha comes out and says, Lord, what are you going to do about this situation? I'm busy preparing the meal. Mary's just sitting here listening to you. I could use some help. And Jesus says, Mary's chosen the the better option, which is to listen to my teaching. And here again, we see that Martha is busy. And where is she as Mary engages this act of love? Raises the question, is Mary again so busy, so preoccupied? Is Martha so busy, so preoccupied that she doesn't have time to participate? And while the text isn't clear explicitly, it gives us reason to ponder that sometimes in our life, busyness is very much an opportunity to keep us from loving Jesus well. In fact, when I reflect on the busyness in our culture, how busy I am and how busy you are and how easily that prevents us from actually being intimate and expressing love to Jesus, it makes me always think of of Malachi in which the prophet takes issue with the people of God because they're so busy and so preoccupied, engaged with the things that they're doing and not really caring about God that they start to bring to him uh, things to sacrifice to him like roadkill or animals that were blind and weren't much good anyway. And the prophet says to the people, what are you bringing to me? Do you think I'm blind? That I can't see that you're bringing me your leftovers? And then I go through a week in the Lake Ray Hubbard community and your average family has been to 15 different sporting events, has tried to make money on the side in some way, has participated at their school, has made time for four lunches with friends and three social engagements, 
has done all of their shopping, started four projects on their house, and then somewhere they slip in a sleepy 10 minutes to sit down and say, okay, Jesus, I'm ready to spend time with you. Here's all the love that I have to bestow upon you. Is he blind? Does he not know that he's getting not even seconds, but thirds, fourths, fifths of you after you've invested in everything else? You have only that much to bring to him. Your busyness crowds out your opportunity to express the kind of love that Mary expresses. That kind of love requires time. Intimacy requires time. And if you're not making time, then you shouldn't expect to experience what, what Mary here possesses and shows to us. I was impressed by the story of Tom Monaghan, which I didn't know. Oddly, the two great pizza tycoons of America live in Detroit. The man, Tom Monaghan, who started Domino's, and the guy... Uh, who started Little Caesars. Both call Motor City their home. And they both uh, owned the Detroit Tigers. They've been competitive over the years to some extent, but Monaghan is, has always been a pretty serious believer. Although he would tell you firsthand uh, that he became incredibly preoccupied by success and acquiring things and beating other people uh, throughout the 80s and er- into the early 90s. Domino started as an average pizza franchise. Then he had this idea that our gimmick is going to be, you know, all kinds of pizza places we're delivering. But in the mid-80s, Monaghan says, we're going to get the pizza there hot before 30 minutes. And Domino's explodes. They start opening hundreds of stores every year. So by the early 1990s, Tom Monaghan is a billionaire. He owns 244 classic cars, has built a $30 million resort on an island in Lake Huron, and travels by helicopter. You can relate, perhaps, to. <laughs> but in the early 90s, he finds himself reading uh, C.S. Lewis and a quote on pride. And Lewis is arguing that pride is the ultimate sin. And he's so convicted by this notion that he begins to take serious stock of his life and realize that his busyness, his commitment to achieving and acquiring more and more and more has actually prevented him from having any kind of intimacy with Christ. And so he uh, he says, looking back, I was uh, I always hated a show off. I realized I was a show off. I wanted not just more. I wanted more than others. What I thought were virtues were really not. Okay. It's so easy to think of busyness simply as a virtue, but in this case, and in the the idea that we're exploring is that busyness may not be a virtue. Busyness may be a very effective way to prevent you from actually being intimate with Jesus. Just as an aside, we're not going to talk about it this morning, but busyness may be a very effective way in your household to prevent you or keep you from spending time with your spouse. Busyness may not be a virtue. So, Monaghan sold everything. Sold dominoes, sold much of his possessions, and began to engage a course simply of philanthropy in which he invested his money in Christian endeavors, in which he pursued intimacy with Christ. So we realize that busyness may be one thing that keeps us from loving Jesus, from experiencing intimacy with Him, but there's another here, idea here even more clearly represented in the person of Judas. Judas is scandalized by what Mary is doing. And he actually raises a legitimate reservation. Right? Jesus has had a lot to say about the poor. He's had a lot to say about how 
how the people that follow him should identify with and support the board. And here you've got Mary taking this incredibly expensive ointment. Why didn't we sell that and, and have it ready to give to the poor? Wouldn't have that been a better use, a, a use that honored Jesus more than simply dumping it on his feet? Judas surely feels some level of conviction, maybe longing, and that he can't understand what Mary is doing. As we know, Judas is just pretending he's a thief. He runs the money bag for the uh, the group that travels with Jesus. He dips his hand into it often, and if there was more money that went into the money bag from the selling of the ointment, there'd be more money that he would have access to as the thief that he was. He's pretending to be righteous, but is really not righteous at all on the inside. A good example of this occurs in some, Zach tipped me off to a segment in the Freakonomics documentary, which is a little bit different than the book, by uh, Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt. Levitt's the economist and Dubner is the journalist. And if you haven't, not familiar with Freakonomics, it's, in some ways it's a very fun read. The basic premise is, uh, we operate with all kinds of conceptions in this world. And when we evaluate the numbers, the conceptions are, are often not borne out. In other words, the numbers reveal things that we don't always perceive from the outside. So Levitt heard in the midst of, he loves to research all kinds of odd things, and he heard about an allegation of cheating in sumo wrestling. I said, well, in my experience, if there's someone's making an allegation of cheating, there's actually cheating. So if you want a really good laugh over the holidays, we watch this. This is on Netflix. If you want to watch it, it's a little segment within the Freakonomics, but I let my kids watch it with me. And my kids had never seen real live sumo wrestling. If you want to laugh, let your kids watch some real live sumo wrestling because their reaction to that sport is pretty funny. And they have some interesting observations about that as it goes on. So for those of you who aren't familiar... Intimately with sumo wrestling, uh, you big tournaments occur and they're 15 days long, and you wrestle one match per day for 15 days straight. Now here's the the crux of the matter: to to move ahead in the rankings, you have to win eight of your seven matches. Right? You have to win just over half, and then you get to be you get put up a rank. If you lose eight or more, you get put down a rank. That's huge. Because ranking is directly tied to how much money you make and how much honor you receive. All right, so we're talking big, big deal in, and there's big money in the upper echelon of sumo wrestling. Now, sumo is interesting too because it's famous for being pure. It is essentially two naked men in a circle of dirt, and all you have to do is either push your opponent to the ground or outside the circle, and that's it. It doesn't get much pure in essence, than that. And, and sumo takes great pride on this purity of tradition. So uh, a lot of it's about honoring the gods of Shintoism. If you ever watch the, the beginning, they show their hands that there's nothing hidden, no weapon hidden in their arms. You know, there's this... Um, you take Japanese culture and then you mix it with sumo and you have this incredibly high value of honor as it's perceived. As it's perceived. So Levitt starts looking at the numbers. What he realizes is uh, something very interesting happens when you're coming to the end of a tournament and you have someone who's won eight and lost six, so they're at 14, and you have someone who has won seven and lost seven 
And they're at 14. Now, the person who's 8 and 6 is already done. They'll go up in ranking. It doesn't really matter what happens in the last match. The person who's 7 to 7 has everything to lose. Everything hinges on this last match. So he starts running numbers on these kinds of matches. And normally, when two people of the same rank in sumo face each other, averages out, you've got about a 50-50 chance of winning. It's pretty even. When you have an 8 and 6 and a 7 and 7 face each other in the final bout, the 8 and 6 person will lose 75% of the time, which is a huge statistical anomaly. What's happening? A deal's being cut behind the scenes. The 8 and 6 person says, I'm good to go. You can win this match. Money's exchanged, and almost inevitably, the next time those two meet, guess who wins? The 8 and 6 guy who threw the match wins the next match. Now, this exploded late 90s, early 2000s in Japanese culture. The first people who actually came out and talked about it all ended up dead. And no autopsies or research was done on their deaths. Like This is not messing around in Japanese culture. It was a huge deal. But what, what Levitt and Dubner is pointing out is there's this notion in Japanese culture. They actually have words that help us a little bit. There's the word hone which means reality as it really is. It's truth. There's another word called tatame, which is the facade, which is things as they appear. And so in Japanese culture, the facade, the tatame of sumo, was that it is the purest of all sports. It is the most noble endeavor. And you had journalists and sumo wrestlers coming, speaking out and starting to say, well, actually, there's not as much ane, honor and truth here as you think there is. It's a veneer. It's very clean on the outside. It's not so clean on the inside. And it blew up. But this is what we see in Judas, right? He, uh, he speaks as if he has a high degree of ane. I'm committed to truth. I'm committed to the cause of the poor. What's going on here? I can, I'll exercise judgment on this for you, Jesus. I, I know what's going on. When the reality behind everything was that that wasn't there at all. It was all tatame, it was all facade, it was all self-righteousness. He's, he's a whitewashed tomb, clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. But when we reflect on that story, how much does it convict us that we are so possessed by a commitment to image, by a commitment to a facade that there's not nearly as much honor, there's not nearly as much commitment to Jesus inside of ourselves, in our hearts, as there is on the outside. Right, Because you know how your speech changes when you're around certain people. Or how you're more eager to do a certain task of love and service when someone will notice. When you think that you're going to get something as a result of it, oh, then you engage. And all this reveals to us that, yeah, we're a lot more dirty on the inside than we pretend to be. Than we are on the outside. But the problem is, when we're committed to an image when we're committed to a veneer and we excuse what's inside because we're committed to that veneer, we could, we could build no more effective wall to intimacy with Jesus. Jesus isn't interested in knowing and loving the veneer of you. In fact, He knows you and He died for you. And it's only when we come to Him with that pretend facade that it alienates us from Him. Does Mary strike you as someone who is captured by image? As someone who cares what everyone is thinking? As she lets down her hair and mops the feet of Jesus 
of the spilt perfume? No. She knows how much she has been loved by Christ and now takes great joy and pleasure in loving Him well. So we see that busyness and self-righteousness are both things that can keep us from Jesus, both things that can, can keep us from experiencing, bestowing that love of, on Christ that He has given to us. And, and yet I said at the outset that you would say to me, and rightly so in some ways, but loving recklessly hurts. Loving is vulnerable. And I've tried to love people well, and it's not gone well. They've, they've hurt me. And really, if you start to unpack that, and again, we can't do that this morning, but you begin to realize that you've, you've got that issue with God too. Because you, you say, I'm going to love Him recklessly because He's loved me recklessly, but then you realize that all the things that are really frustrating and hurt in your life are things that He's permitted and allowed. And then you think, oh, loving Him is dangerous too because He's unpredictable and some of this, frankly, hurts. And it is as we remember that that the Jesus that Mary is loving is the Jesus who goes to the cross. The Jesus who lays down His life so that you might be redeemed. And as she acts in loving Him, as she bestows her affection upon Him, she then has opportunity to receive that affection from Christ at a much deeper level. To To the degree that you bestow love upon Christ is in part the degree to which, of course, he'll love you better than you love him. And don't hear me saying that you... Ha- I'll be upset with you if you cop out and say, Orion's just saying that Jesus' love for us is dependent on our love for him. It's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is when you begin to wrestle with how much you've been loved by Christ, you realize that you're not loving him well at all. And when you start to actually love him as Mary loves him in this passage then you start to engage a relationship of intimacy that will do wild and unpredictable and beautiful things in your life. What will begin to happen? Number one, you're going to love your enemies. You're going to have a love flowing through you that comes from Christ that is just like His. As He goes to the cross for His enemies, you will love your enemies in ways that will surprise you. And in ways that will not be hurtful in the same way because you're not loving them solely out of your own reservoir of human finite love but you're loving them with the love of Christ that flows through you. The other thing that's going to happen is that you're going to love the least of these. Because you know that in loving the least of these, you actually express love to Christ. Is that not what he invites us to in Matthew 25? To love those who are naked and in prison and hungry. In doing that, we love Christ. And it's when His love is flowing through us because we're loving Him and engaging that relationship that we're actually equipped to do it. We could say this inversely in closing. Do you struggle to love your enemy? I do. In fact, my history is I tend to cut people off. If you offend, I grew up in the Northeast. I say that. I don't know if it has anything to do with it, but... My personality, emotionally, I would just write, oh, you've offended me? Okay, you and your family are dead. It's easy, right? It's just done. It's cut off. It's not godly. It doesn't reflect Christ. And so, to the degree that I'm failing to love my enemy, to the degree that I'm failing to love the least of these, it shows me that I'm not really loving Christ. 
You may think I am, but no, if I was loving Christ, I would be loving my enemy and loving the least of these. So as you enter the holidays, let me challenge you to do this. I dare you to think of a way in which you can actually express more love to Jesus. Kind of like Mary. It'll take all different shapes and forms for whoever you are, but what can you do that actually costs you something? Maybe not a year's wages. We won't start there. right? But what will actually cost you? What's expensive? What hurts a little bit? And what might be even, I don't know, a little bit embarrassing? A little bit contrary to social norm, but something that for you will communicate to you, Jesus, this is something I do for you to express my love for you. Forgive me for not doing it more, but help me to grow as a result of this in my intimacy with you. And out of that will come love for enemy and love for the least of these. Let's pray. A gracious God, we know only so such a small percentage of what your love is for us. We thank you for that love, and we pray that you would mature us in it. Help us to be a people who make us unbridled in our love for you. We're so worried about image. We're so busy according to the things of this world. We pray that your Spirit would free us to love you, to love you recklessly as Mary did, and in that to know the joy of intimacy with you. And as a result of that, we pray that you would help us to be faithful and strengthened in loving our enemies and in loving the least of these. We ask for your grace in this. In Christ's name, amen.